Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. Thank you for tuning in. I am so glad to share the next couple of minutes with you today. I want you to find victory and life in Jesus Christ. And at Valley View Friends Church, we like to say we're learning how to live as God's people, reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. I want to encourage you to look us up on the web at valleyviewfriendschurch.org, or you can look us up on Facebook as well. Today, we're starting a new series, a study in the book of Ruth. And the theme for our year, as we've already mentioned, is the word holy. And Ruth is a book that has a lot to say about holiness and the decisions that we make. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to this week's message. There was a husband and wife who prior to marriage decided uh, that he would make all the major decisions and she would make all the minor ones. And after 20 years of marriage, he was asked how this arrangement had worked out. Great, he said, and all these years I've never had to make a major decision. That's interesting, I guess. Um, I don't recommend that you divide up your marriage decisions in this way. Uh, Certainly, uh, if you abdicate your responsibility in all decisions in your marriage, that relationship is going to be unhealthy. Now, I know there's some debate on whether the Bible describes a marriage relationship as a hierarchy or as an equality. But no matter how you want to look at marriage, it is biblically a partnership marked out by mutual respect, mutual care, mutual help for one another. It is unhealthy for any half in the marriage to mercilessly dominate. Or on the other side of it, it's it's really unhealthy for one to become voiceless and powerless in a marriage. Biblical marriage is a partnership that should above all else honor God. Biblically, the husband and wife need to encourage one another to draw nearer and nearer to God. For the next several weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Ruth. And it is a book that has a lot to say about marriage. It has a lot to say what makes for a healthy foundation to marriage. And even more so, Ruth has a lot to say about healthy relationships and what it means to be ordinary people who make extraordinary decisions that change the course of their lives, their families, their nation, and the world. The book of Ruth tells us about the holy nature of our decisions, and this is going to be our theme through the series of Ruth, that all our decisions are holy. So, do not discount the holy power of your decisions. You're going to have to remind yourself that your decisions are holy every day. Because our culture proclaims that your decisions are ordinary, and they belong only to you, and so they should matter only to you. Our culture says our decisions are ordinary because they're common. In our world, especially the Western world, and wow, America is king of this, we have an abundance of choice. We have restaurants, more than we could ever want to choose from. We have products. Go to the grocery store. There are more types of toothpaste than you could ever need. There's choices to be made. There's choices in education, choices in careers, you name it. And we have more options than we could ever need or want. A Columbia researcher, uh, Sheena uh, Iyengar, has found that the average person makes about 70 conscious decisions every day. That's about 25,550 decisions a year, and over 70 years, that adds up to 1,788,500 decisions. 
Albert Camus said, Life is the sum of all your choices. And if you put all those 1,788,500 choices together, that's who you are. Hmm. It's an interesting thing to think about. Perhaps with so many decisions, they seem common. They don't seem so special, let alone holy. And yet, those decisions are very holy. Even the little ones. When you start feeling like your decisions are disposable, you start to forget how holy each decision is. Now, at the same time that our society makes decisions seem to be so common that they can be thrown away, our society also elevates your authority to make decisions. The phrase, the right to decide, is the idea that each person has the right to self-determination, to be able to choose what is good and what they need in life. And biblically, God has given us the authority to make our own choices. We call this free will. However, not all decisions are good. And in this day and age, our culture declares simply that because you've made a choice, whatever that choice is, whatever you choose is good and valuable. But this is not necessarily the case. It's certainly not the case. The main theme for our entire sermon series is this. Your decisions are holy. Your decisions are holy and have the power to welcome the hand of God or the hardship of sin into your world. Ordinary people whose decisions honor God have a much farther reaching impact than they could possibly imagine or even know. And I want to urge you to take the holiness of your decisions very seriously. So let's take a moment here, since we're embarking on a series in the book of Ruth, I want to give you some information about the book of Ruth that will help you as you read it and study it over the next few weeks. Now, we don't really know who wrote the book of Ruth, but traditionally, Samuel is considered to be the author. He's the one who anointed David as Israel's king, so it would maybe seem likely that Samuel wants to tell the story of David's family tree, and Ruth does tell that story. Uh, maybe a little bit more interesting is that it's Ruth is the only Old Testament book named, named after a Canaanite. Uh, the heroine, Ruth, is a Moabite, and uh, that's a walking, talking problem that she's a Moabite, because Moabites are seen as some of the worst enemies of Israel. In fact, God even commanded the Israelites to avoid the Moabites. And we'll read a little bit more about that in a few moments here. Uh, Ruth, I think one of the most interesting things about Ruth is this, that Ruth is a book that is interpreted uh, in part by its location in the Bible. And what I mean is this. Ruth has, at different times in history, been placed in different spots in the Bible. Uh, and so, we could look at it this way. Uh, three different look places in history that Ruth has been placed in the Bible. First, in the Christian Bible, the one we use, okay? Uh, Ruth is found located between uh, the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And so, when we come across the book of Ruth, we see a continuation of the story. Uh, and when we find it in that location, the message it rings out is one of devotion, one of faithfulness, uh, faithfulness of Ruth, the devotion of Ruth, but also the devotion and faithfulness of God, helping Israel out of the time of the judges and into the time of kings, being faithful to them. And it's a book about extraordinary people who are doing extraordinarily uh, 
faithful things for God. Now, if you're Jewish and you have just a Jewish Bible, which is the Old Testament, right? Ruth is located somewhere else. The Jewish Bible is organized into three large sections. There's the law, the prophets, and the writings. And in the Jewish Bible, Judges and Samuel are considered to be prophets. They're called the former prophets. And Ruth is considered a writing, so it's moved into the writing section. Furthermore, Ruth is part of what is called the megalith, or the five scrolls. These are five books, five writings that are tied to different Jewish festivals throughout the year. And so, these five books are put into an order as to when these festivals come up in the year. And the first one is Song of Songs. The second one is Ruth. Third one is Lamentations. Third one's Ecclesi- or fourth one is Ecclesiastes. And the fifth one is Esther. So, Song of Songs is always first, and it's read during Passover, which we just got through. And Ruth is second, and it's read during the season that we're about to enter Pentecost. So, if you're Jewish, and you've always read Ruth after reading Song of Songs, you start to make a connection. Because Song of Songs is a love, a book of love between a man and a woman, a romance, uh, very much highlighting uh, marriage. And then you get to, if you're reading through the seasons of the year, then you get to Ruth next, and you go, ah, Ruth is Song of Songs in reality. You have, instead of just a nameless man and woman, you have Boaz and Ruth becoming that couple in love. And yes, Ruth is a book about love and marriage and commitment. And yes, Ruth has much to say about what a healthy marriage looks like. We could learn a lot about healthy marriages and healthy relationships in general from reading the book of Ruth. Now, there's one more instance of location in the Bible when it comes to the book of Ruth that is a little bit, you may think these aren't that important, but I think there's something to them because I think they happened and were done for a reason. And so, This is an odd one, but I think it's quite special. For the Hebrew people in the Jewish Bible, the oldest complete Bible is called the Leningrad Codex. It dates back to the year 1008 after Christ. There are older manuscripts of the Old Testament, but this is the oldest complete copy of the Bible. Now, why is this important? Well, in this Bible, Ruth is placed right after the book of Proverbs. Now, you might wonder, does that even matter? I I actually think it does. Proverbs ends in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, a passage that is read on Mother's Day quite often, and it just happens to be Mother's Day when this podcast goes to air. That section of Proverbs describes what's called a woman of noble character, a wife of noble character. And it's just verse after verse of what she is like. So now if your Bible has arranged Proverbs and then immediately follows with Ruth, you might start to go, okay, I just read about who this wife of noble character, what she's like. And then you read Ruth and you go, ah, Ruth is the living embodiment of this description. Boaz, in the book of Ruth, even describes Ruth with the same name, the same Hebrew phrase of a woman of noble character that you find in Proverbs 31. You find it in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. 
Boaz says this, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Those words right there. Harken straight back to Proverbs 31. Ruth, she is a woman of such character, she harkens back to the ideal that everybody is living for in Proverbs 31. So the book of Ruth, just by its location, has a ton to tell us about faithfulness and devotion, about God making good on his promises from the book of Judges into Samuel with the beginning of the kings. It has a lot to say about marriage, about a husband and wife linking it to Song of Songs. It has a lot to say about a woman of noble character. And I think we could also stretch that to say in Boaz we see a man of good character as well. It has a tremendous amount to teach us. And so it's just sheer location in the Bible makes all sorts of connections that God wants us to see. The book of Ruth is also a book about outsiders and insiders, and I don't think we should miss that one in our day and age. It's not fun in our culture today to talk about things that uh, threaten us or scare us, and immigration and illegal immigration is one of those uh, ideas that is quite contentious in our culture, and yet the book of Ruth deals a lot with migration and people moving from nation to nation, from people group to people group, and you find out what the impact is. It has a book that has a lot to say about what happens when the circles of wealth and poverty intersect. It has a lot to say about how the people of God should act towards outsiders of the faith. The book deals with race and it deals with immigration. Ruth is a Moabite. I mentioned that earlier and we need to really dwell on that for a moment. Moabites are not well loved by the Israelites and for very good reason. The prophets describe Moab as a prideful nation. It was a Moabite king that hired a false prophet to lead Israel aside to mislead them in the book of Numbers, Balaam and his donkey, right? And then Eglon in the book of Judges, uh, or I'm sorry, again in the book of Judges, Moab dominated the people of Israel multiple times. One of the kings, Eglon, was one of those stories there. Um, Moabite women throughout the Bible, are seen as sinfully seducting, seducing, and misleading Israel's men away from God. So, yeah, there's a scene in the book of Ruth. We have Ruth, the Moabite woman, meeting Boaz in the dark of night at the threshing room floor. And it's this sort of... This sort of uh, uncomfortable scene where the stereotype is something sinful is about to happen, and yet... Something wonderful happens. The stereotype doesn't come true, and God does something amazing because the decisions of Ruth and Boaz, they are making holy decisions to try to honor and please God. You know, when it comes to Moabites, God even puts laws in place concerning the Moabites. And that's a tricky thing to try to figure out how to discern with the book of Ruth. You have Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6. It reads like this, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation, for they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And when they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing 
blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So Ruth also asks us to try to navigate this command of God with the situation that's happening in the book of Ruth. Ruth, our heroine, comes from a race of people that are a threat to Israel. And this means her descendants also come from the race of Moab. And there's some irony in that, because David, who becomes one of Israel's greatest kings, is actually, if you look at his family tree, at least in the very immediate, he seems to be more Canaanite than Jewish, because David is king. He's a king that pleases God. Um, but his great-grandmother was Ruth, and his great-great-grandmother on his father's side was Rahab. So his father isn't totally Jewish, and his mother isn't Jewish at all. So I think that makes David, what, three-quarters Canaanite? At any rate, he's got Moabite blood in his, his family line. He's got Canaanite in his family line, and they've got to figure out what do we make of this? Because Saul, Saul was a Jewish king, and he wasn't so good at the job. But David, he's actually less Jewish than they'd like to admit, but he is a man after God's own heart. Some Bible scholars even think the book of Ruth was written to help Israel, uh, those in Israel who are uncomfortable with David's family tree. The idea is to say, hey, look at the actions of the person. They're making these holy decisions to honor God as opposed to just simply having uh, Moabite blood in their veins. It's easy to paint in broad strokes of the stereotype. And the book of Ruth asks you and me to look at people specifically and individually. Well, that's a lot of background. That's enough for now. Let's just take a few moments here, because we're already at length in our message. Let us take a few moments and read the beginning of Ruth. And the story begins with a very important idea. That is this. There is danger in trusting our own judgment over God's judgment. So let's go ahead and read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mehlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to aid his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. What a beginning to the story. We're introduced to all these characters and a situation of famine. Elimelech has some very tough choices to make, and he decides to trust what seems to be good to him instead of seeking what God wants for his family. This is very important for us to see. 
And the result is, as soon as Elimelech departs from putting God first, Elimelech invites chaos and confusion and struggle into his life. And that's really the big idea for today, this first little section that I want you to get beyond the fact that our decisions are holy. The other big idea is this, that we need to resist taking matters into your own hands and decide that God's way is just and good and right. When you are willing to say that God's way is just and good and right, that will make your decisions much easier, at least much clearer. Remember how I said that Ruth is interpreted according to the books it's next to? Well, Ruth opens telling us that it takes place during the time of Judges. And more than anything else in the time of Judges, uh, the book of Judges was known as a time when Israel did whatever they liked. The book of Judges, the very last verse. So, the very if you open up your Bible, your Christian Bible, and you read the book of Judges, the last verse in the book that you read before you turn the page to start Ruth is this line in Judges 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. Everybody did as they thought was best. And then the story starts with this character named Elimelech, which, let's just point this out, Elimelech, um, Eli Melech, okay? Eli meaning Elohim, meaning God, Melech meaning king, and his name means my God is, or my, my God is king. Yeah. So the last verse you read in Judges is, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And then we're introduced here. Hey, there's this guy and he was facing famine in the land. Oh, and by the way, his name is my God is king. But remember, this is a time when Israel had no king and everybody did as they saw fit. And so you have Elimelech facing a famine. And he decides the best course of action is to take matters into his own hands because he doesn't live up to his name. He doesn't really live like God is his king. And he becomes an immigrant to Moab. (sighs) Poor guy. I mean, I kind of feel for him. Elimelech seems to just be following the food. He's facing deadly circumstances and it requires him to take matters into his own hands. (sighs) But this is more than Elimelech making a practical decision. He turns his back on God. And we see that first, as I mentioned in his name, my God is king, but Elimelech acts anything other than my God is king. He acts like he's king, like his family is king, like his safety is king, instead of God being king. And then as you read the story, you find that Elimelech does not consult God at all in the face of famine. He leaves the promised land, and that is a big deal. He chooses to leave the land that God promised him that would be good for him. And then Elimelech's family accompanies him. Their their actions voice voice faith in him instead of in God. And then Elimelech goes to the Moabites, as I mentioned, a people who have harassed Israel for quite a while. Who, uh, a people who hates Israel, a people who God even warned Israel against, and then his sons take Moabite wives, which God warned against that. And this speaks to Elimelech's family becoming a part of Moab. 
They're going where the food is. They're going where they think it is best for them, not where God has said it is best for them. And you and I face the same temptation to decide on our own what is best for ourselves. Remember, one of the big themes of Ruth is that our decisions are holy, and our decisions can invite God in with his blessing or invite in sin with its troubles. And one of the deep-rooted proclamations of our culture is that no one knows more than you what is best for you. (laughs) And what a lie that is. Our culture says you are your best authority for your own happiness. But that's not true. It says that you are your own authority for truth. But that's not true. Our culture says you are your own authority for what is good for you and what is bad for you. But that is not reality. We can make our own choices, but eventually we will come up against the reality of God if we've been deciding counter to him. Francis Chan uh, sums up this, because I see so many people these days trying to tell us who God is and what God's like. Well, God couldn't possibly be like that. I, I can't believe that God would forbid this or, or not want that. And Francis Chan writes this, we don't get to decide who God is. We don't make that judgment call. God has declared himself. He is. And we either agree or we try to go another way and we will crash on the rocks. And yet we often try to decide who God is or if he's good or not. or It just doesn't work that way. Rick Warren writes these words, Eternal values, not temporal ones, should become the deciding factors of your decisions. And that is the truth. But so often we make decisions based on the very temporary situations we find ourselves in. I'm not trying to preach that following God leads to an easy and rich life. I would never try to convey that. But following God does lead to a good life, a life that is fulfilled, a life that is complete, a life that is satisfied. And I have a quote from one of our pastors in our denomination. His name's Nathaniel from Canton First Friends Church. This was on their Instagram account a few weeks ago, and he writes these words, Faith that God builds in his children is not faith in outcomes. It is faith in him. I want to read that again to you. The faith that God builds in his children is not faith in outcomes. It is faith in him. And if you want to avoid the mistake that Elimelech makes in the beginning of Ruth, you will put your faith in God and not in the outcomes of life. You see, living as you see fit puts your faith in outcomes. And so you go, oh, do I like how I feel? Oh, I don't. I better make a change. Do I like my circumstances? Oh, I don't. I better make a change. And you make your faith and you put your faith in outcomes. But faith in God says, no matter what, I will follow the Lord. And no matter what happens to me, I will say and I will know the truth that the Lord is good. No matter what, God will be the most important priority of my life. And that's the question that I want to leave with you today. Can you say that God is your most important priority? Are you wanting to be the judge over what is good and not good? Do you want to be the final say? Or are you letting God be the final say, letting him be the priority? If you want to find meaning, 
If you want to find satisfaction, if you want to find purpose in your life, you will seek God first. There is no other way for this to work. Don't be an Elimelech. You'll find that we need to be like Boaz. We need to be like Ruth as we go through this story. We don't make decisions on our whims and on our desires, but on the surety and the foundation of God. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, help each one of us to see the holy importance of our decisions. It's so easy to trust our own judgment, our own priorities in place of your will and you, who you are, Lord. Help each of us to trust you more and more each day so that we will see you as the top priority in how we live our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.